If you would, let's pray just once more as we go to the Lord's word. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you attend to your word now? We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so we pray that even now you would cause your word to go forth in power and in authority. Keep me faithful. Cause your word to pierce the hearts of those here, to build up your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So what do Christians really believe? What is at the core of the Christian message? If you're a Christian, how would you summarize what it is, what is core to the message that you believe? Over the next 13 weeks, I want to take us through a study of what may be the oldest remaining New Testament document we have answering that very question, the book of Galatians. You may not realize it, but few books have actually had very uh, have had so great an impact on you sitting right here in this room inside of this Protestant church more than this book of Galatians. James Boyce referred to it as the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation, the Magna Carta of Christian liberty, because in it contains the essence, the the very substance of the Christian gospel, the good news that we proclaim salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. It was this very message that 500 years ago, this very year, young Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle door of Wittenberg, declaring that this is the truth. He was quoted as having said, referring to the book of Galatians, I call this Catherine von Bora, the name of his wife, because, Luther said, I am wedded to it. Well, let's open our Bibles then to the book of Galatians, and we'll take a few moments to briefly establish the context of this Glorious letter. You'll find right there in the first two verses that we're told both who wrote the letter and the intended recipients of it. So Galatians 1 verse 1, those first few words, Paul, an apostle. So there's our author. And then skip down to verse 2. And all the brothers with me to the churches of Galatia. So Paul, the author, writing to churches, churches that he likely planted with Barnabas in that first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14, as he and Barnabas are traveling through on their kind of first going out, preaching the gospel, and they plant these churches throughout southern Galatia. Well, it's probably these very churches. So now he's writing a letter to them in in what is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, This church then, these various churches, would have been comprised largely of Gentile converts, given the area but converts under their very witness, their very evangelism. And so you can imagine, it makes sense as we go through this letter, that there's this assumption that there is this deep childlike affection between these churches and Paul, who is now more functioning as almost their, their spiritual father in the faith, having brought them the good news. So Paul says in chapter 4 that these churches received him as an angel of God. 
And if possible, they would have gouged out their very eyes and given them to him. Such was their love and affection. But then how could they not feel this way? He was the very one that brought them the words of eternal life, who taught them the gospel, who told them how they could be saved through faith in Jesus. But then after leaving these churches, Paul departs and he starts going to other cities to plant other churches. And suddenly he hears horrible news. That, that gospel that he had brought them, that message, that fundamental truth that, that they had previously believed, well, it was now being compromised. And these converts, his, his children in the faith, were thinking about turning away from it. And to make matters worse, they weren't even sure they could trust him anymore. They weren't even sure that he was trustworthy. So likely no more than a mere two years after having left them, Paul pins this letter to these churches with a newfound fear that he could possibly lose these young Christians. And so we'll find, as we go through this letter, a, a unique sense of, of urgency as well as severity and even harshness. Most of the letter is spent explaining what it is that Christians fundamentally believe, as we asked at the beginning. And yet this morning, we're actually going to dive just into the first ten verses. Where I think the majority, the, the primary focus of what Paul is getting at is to tell them how they can keep the truth when they have it. How they can keep from turning away and keep from losing it. His aim for these churches, and what I trust is his aim for this local church in Southwest Harbor, is that they would hold fast to the truth as a church. And he offers three ways that we do this. And those will serve as our three points this morning. Three ways. We trust true teachers. We protect the true gospel. And we live as true servants. We trust true teachers. We protect the true gospel. And we live as true servants. So if you would, follow along with me as I read now from Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me, to the churches in Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Well, we hold fast to the truth as a church by first trusting true teachers. Now, where I'm from, 
writing letters is not quite something we do anymore. Certainly not handwritten letters. It's more of a, a pastime, if you will. But maybe things are different here. So just my own curiosity, raise your hand if in the last year you have handwritten a letter. I am utterly impressed. That is, that's great. Well, you'll understand what's happening here a bit more than people in where I'm from. You know, Galatians, often referred to as a book of the Bible, is probably better understood as a handwritten letter from Paul to these churches in Galatia. That's so you have the author, Paul, to his audience, the churches, with a basic greeting, as is common in a letter, his greeting there in verses 3 to 5. But with a closer look, what we find is that in this greeting, Paul actually does something a bit more. He is, he's defending something. He's defending his very apostleship, his authority, his trustworthiness, that he is himself a true teacher. So let's look back again to verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, Paul, an apostle, and here we are, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers with me to the churches in Galatia. Now, generally speaking, an apostle, they're just simply a messenger, somebody who is sent, commissioned. But what we find in the New Testament is that the apostle is set aside for a specific office, those whom Christ has commissioned. He's given a special commission to go do and say a certain message. So it appears that Paul's opponents are actually levying some accusations against him that, oh, this, this Paul, he, he isn't from God. He just received some message from man. You can't trust him. And Paul's reminding them, as he'll do in, in next week's text, even, even more detail, no, 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 you remember my conversion. You remember I was commissioned by Christ himself. We see that in the book of Acts, and like I said in next week's passage in more detail. Why is this significant, though? Well, Paul's authority, and therefore his very message, well, it's going to ride entirely on this reality. It is his apostleship that will give him unique authority to bring them this message from God, to be his very mouthpiece to them. Without it, Paul's message is no more authoritative than that of his opponents. You know, I, I, I grasped this idea very clearly while working as a project manager in D.C. Uh, I was low on the totem pole, to say the least, but I had many busy executive-level clients that had virtually no interest in me and certainly not in doing tasks I asked them to do. So I soon found that if I just simply, truthfully, but simply mentioned to them how my boss had a vested interest in my meeting a deadline, or that, that end-of-the-week report I have to give about my client's ability to fulfill the task they were given, suddenly this, this client that was unresponsive, unhelpful, is now accommodating, hardworking, even pleasant to work with. You know, what, what's happening there? What's happening is they, they, as soon as they understood I'd been delegated an authority from someone higher ranking than them, well, now they were quick to listen. Even a low and junior voice like mine could carry the weight of an executive. And people responded. Friends, authority is only so great as the one from whom it is derived. Authority is only so great as the one from whom it is derived. And for Paul, his was derived from the Lord Christ himself, marking him as a true and therefore trustworthy Teacher, but without apostles today, 
What about for you? How is Southwest Harbor to discern who is a trustworthy teacher, who is a true and reliable teacher for them? Well, I think you look at the content of their message. What is it that they're saying? Is it apostolic? Is it biblical? Does it align with what the apostles, like Paul, taught? And that's where Paul turns in his next few verses, verses 3 to 5. This will be his message. Verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What was Paul's message? It was a message of grace. It was an unmerited favor, an undeserved gift, and it was a message of peace. Peace with God and peace with one another, both of which are only had when you've first been a recipient of this grace. Friends, if you are not a Christian and you have joined us this morning, let me first just thank you for coming. I am as much of a visitor as you are in many ways. Uh, This is my first time to Maine and certainly to this island. And I will be standing at one of those two doors on the way out, and I would love to get to know you. I'm trying to get to know as many people here as I can and would love to talk to you on the way out. Number one question I'd ask you to consider during what remains of our time together is if there is a God, what do you think is his view of you? What do you think is your position before him? Have you ever heard that the Bible actually says on your own, in your natural state, each of us are in need before God, in need of grace and of peace, and that apart from it, we're actually at enmity with him. We're at at war with him. Our sin has made us opposed to him and held us captive to the present evil age. See, the Bible tells us that God has created us each in his image, but we are called to live perfectly in his image, to image him rightly as he is, and yet we have all failed. Rather, we've gone our own way and rejected his authority over us, trying to make us gods in his place. And because of that, and because God is good and just, he is going to judge us accordingly, what the Bible calls hell. But the good news, this gospel that Paul speaks of, is that we have a means of deliverance. God has offered us a way of escape. Look back to verse 3. He says, Grace and peace are given as gifts from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. For it was, verse 4, Jesus who gave himself For our sins. Why did Jesus come? To give his life as a ransom for many. To take away the sins of his people. When he died on the cross, he actually took the punishment for our sin. Bearing it upon himself and giving his perfect righteousness that we should have lived to anyone who would ever turn from their sin and trust in him alone. Friend, if you have not done that, let me urge you to consider turning to Jesus even today. But if you have, if you are a recipient of this grace and peace, did you see what other purpose Jesus came to give his life for? To set you free, to rescue you, to deliver you from the bondage of sin. See, before you were a Christian, the Bible says you were captive. You were enslaved, unable to live righteously as you were called but in christ you were actually empowered made able to overcome sin's bondage and power over you and you have been promised guaranteed that by the last day 
in the last day, when Christ comes, you will finally know victory over all sin. And that is the great hope of the Christian. And all of this, according to the sovereign will of our Father and the voluntary choosing of his Son. It is no wonder that Paul bursts into this, his only greeting doxology, where he bursts into this word of praise at the end of his greeting. Glory to the Father forever and ever. Amen. Is there ever greater reason than this to give praise to our God? Well, this, friends, is the message of the true teacher, the one you should trust. And Paul's charge to us is to trust true teachers. But that's not only a charge to the individual Christian. That's actually a charge to the church. That's who he's writing to. He's a church at large, corporate. So you see that uh, you, we, members of this church in particular, are responsible for examining the content of their teachers and for bringing in to the church those who will teach the word. The only teachers that should fill this pulpit are those who will preach the gospel, this message that Paul produces or preaches, who affirm it and teach it and subject themselves to God's final authority in his word. I'd ask that you pray for me in that as I'm up here for these next 13 weeks, but certainly in the, the months and years to come, that should be your criteria and your job. We, and I want to camp out for a moment just on that idea, though, of trusting those who are true teachers. You know, we want to be these modern-day Bereans. If you remember from Acts 17, you know, Paul's evangelizing these group in, this group in Berea, and it says that they were the noble Jews who took everything Paul said and examined it against the Scriptures to make sure what he was saying was true. Well, that's what we want to do. Certainly, we want to examine against God's word what it is that is said. But once that truth is established, we actually want to try and have a, a disposition of trust, a disposition of submission to those who teach us his word. You know, Jesus gave us teachers and shepherds as gifts to the church. You see that in Ephesians 4. Christ gave the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So we should always be careful to test what is taught against the scriptures. But we should also have a disposition of trust and of submission and even of gratitude, not skepticism. So I wonder how you think, even this morning, you're doing that here. Not specifically with me, but more so thinking of your elders, those whom you've appointed to, to be the ones bearing the responsibility of, of, burden, of, of bringing you God's word. You know, in a day and age when leadership is often viewed with this kind of skepticism, how are you doing at trusting those God has gifted to you as your shepherds and overseers? But now, friends, you are called to do more than just identify who these true teachers are. You are also called to protect their true message. You know, while one is the bringing in of that which is positive, that which is true, the other is putting out that which is false. And that's where Paul turns next, our second point protect the true gospel. Now what follows in his letter is in, in verses six to nine is really a, a tone of urgency and concern that we have to assume marks this situation as desperate. It marks it as in a grave, grave situation. He bypasses any words of encouragement and just dives right into the concern. So let's look at verse six. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion or trying 
to pervert the gospel of Christ. Friends, Paul is beside himself. As we mentioned already, it hasn't been but maybe two years since he, since he, planted, since he left them, having brought them the gospel and, and heard them believe. And they're already thinking about turning to a different gospel. There are any children in the room? I wonder if you hear your parents' exasperated tone a little bit here. You know, as I was reading, I was thinking about my childhood, and I, I just hear my parents say, you're fighting again? I, I just told you this. How are you already returning to that? It's only been two hours. And for me, it was two minutes. Except what we have here is something of much more grave situation. Paul is saying, you're turning away so soon? Have you already forgotten the only way to eternal life? Would you so quickly adopt to the latest whim of teaching and abandon that which is true? But friends, his, his urgency is actually a, a, a glimmer of hope because what we find in it is that Paul believes there's still time. He believes that if he warns them, he might stop them in their tracks. He might prevent them from going the rest of the way. What are the consequences if they do? Well, what we see is if they follow these false teachers, they actually desert God himself. It's fundamentally abandoning God. So you see there in verse 6, or verse, yeah, verse 6, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. God who called you in the first place. When you desert the gospel, you desert the God of the gospel. When you desert the gospel, you desert the God of the gospel. Belief in this gospel is like the legal papers of your adoption into the family of God. The moment you nullify them, the moment you try to cancel them, you have now broken the very thing that established your relationship in the first place. And Paul makes clear that there is no other gospel but that which he's already presented. These false teachers may be presenting something as a gospel, but he's saying there is nothing else. But what's thrown them into confusion, it seems, is not that they're presenting an entirely foreign gospel, but that they're affirming Paul's gospel and adding to it. They're just twisting it, perverting it, distorting it, affirming his message but saying it's incomplete, that it is a gospel of grace and law. It reminds me of the Garden of Eden. What was it? How did Satan tempt Adam and Eve? He didn't come with foreign words. He came and said, did God really say? Did you not know that he, he only said that because he didn't want you to, to be like him? Well, it's not going to be that bad. He just hasn't told you the whole story yet. We just have a little bit more. Friends, part of how we protect the gospel is not just by rejecting false teaching, but by warning those who are being deceived, are being tempted to go that path. I wonder how you, on this, meeting someone on this island, who says, oh yeah, we, we believe basically the same thing, whether it's your mom or your dad or your neighbor, your coworker. We believe the same thing, but you know that they believe in not just the gospel, but their works as well. How is it that you respond? Or maybe it's your Roman Catholic friend or uh, it could be a universalist who says they've chosen Christianity, but it's just one of many options. You know, ultimately, all roads lead to heaven, and Jesus isn't really the only way. He's not even necessary. Or the Zambian guy I met on the plane on Tuesday, 
who came from a prosperity gospel church that said, oh, yeah, we believe the gospel, but really the gospel is about your best life now. How should we respond? Should we silently affirm their deception? Or should we warn them? Friends, Paul gives a good example of a warning to this church in Galatia. But then he goes further, going beyond those who are being tempted to deceive, to now cursing those who are actively deceiving. Sneaking into these Galatian churches where those actively teaching lies, unrepentantly seeking to lead these young Christians astray. For them, Paul's response reaches an even greater severity. So you see, let's, let's look then to verse 8. Paul says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I can say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. We need to understand the weight of his concern here. He uses this Greek word anathema, which effectively is saying, let them be worthy of condemnation. Let them be worried of, worthy of God's judgment, his destruction. But he reserves this specifically for those who are preaching a false gospel, who have come in and taught and sought to lead astray those in the church. Now, for uh, even if that was Paul himself, he makes the church responsible, the very church that he planted. He gives them authority to reject him. The church protects the gospel, not just by warning those who are tempted, but by rejecting the false in their midst. The longer you let it linger, the more likely it is to lead astray. The longer you let it linger, the more likely it is to lead astray. Now, for some of us, Paul's example serves as a great encouragement. We're the more timid, uh, more oriented toward being a people pleaser. And it seems horrifying to offend somebody like this. And we need to, to hear Paul's words here. He's pointing out that this is reason worth offending. Here hangs in the balance the eternal state of souls. For you, the purity of the gospel must be seen more precious more worth protecting, even with your own life. It's as though you've received, let's say, the, the Mona Lisa. You know, you've received this painting worth the original, worth $800 million. Okay, that's what you've just gotten. And someone comes to you and says, why do you think we make this small adjustment? Well, let's just add something here. You know, I bet they would really like it if we made this slight change over on this side. Well, there's no way. Because the moment that you let any alteration happen to the purity of that painting, its value goes out the door. It has nothing of substance left. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is worth more than anything. There is nothing more valuable than to know the way to salvation. And yet at the same time, there is nothing more destructive than to allow it be distorted and leave people astray. In a pure state, it may be the news of eternal life, but in a distorted state, it is the very path to anathema. So friends, if, you're, if your friends accuse you of being exclusive, 
lovingly remind them that this is not your idea to create some club. This is not something you came up with because you wanted your own social clique. This is what you see in God's word. And he gives severe warnings to those who disagree with it. And it's true. So you feel the weight, the impetus to make sure they know it. You love them enough to tell them, to even offend them for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of their souls. But others of us, well, we may perhaps be a bit too quick to declare someone a false teacher. For us, we should consider when exactly Paul does encourage such a cursing, such fiery zeal. For Paul, it was when false teachers teach a false gospel unrepentantly. This is not a disagreement over doctrine. It's not even a mistaken or misinformed teaching or teacher. This is a deliberate and ongoing attempt to lead the saints astray and direct them down a path of destruction. We should be careful charging someone as a false teacher. There is a reason Paul exhorts Timothy to not let anyone in his church admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. We should have clear, grounded evidence that someone is teaching falsely and unrepentantly and deliberately before we label them such. But then how are we to protect this gospel unless we know it ourselves? You, church, have been given a job description and entrusted with the responsibility to protect this gospel, and so you should be equipping one another to make sure you can carry out this job. You know, I think of Hebrews 3.13, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Friends, what better way to encourage one another and protect one another from the deceitfulness of sin than to remind one another of the truth daily? And a quick plug to the elderly saints among us. In the face of cultural opposition, young Christians often fear that the church or the gospel will not be able to stand. They forget what time and age validates. The gospel will not fail. The church will not be destroyed. We need you to remind us of God's never-ceasing faithfulness to his word, to his people, and to the promises that the gates of hell shall not prevail. So having established what then makes a true teacher and therefore makes them trustworthy and how we should as a church protect this trustworthy teaching, this gospel, Paul now concludes with his example of true servitude. The heart and drive and motive behind it all. This will be our last and shorter point. We want to live as true servants. So let's read verse 10 together. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. There's rich application here, but before we get into it, I want to make sure we understand it in the context of how this fits with the rest of verses 1 through 9. It appears that part of what his opponents are accusing him of is that he's being a people pleaser. He's changing his message based on his audience. So you could hear them saying, well, to the, to the Jews, 
Paul preaches the law. Oh, but to you Gentiles, in order to gain your approval, he's, he's preaching grace. He's preaching freedom from the law. But if you really want to be saved, you need to go the rest of the way and submit to the, the law of Moses. Paul is only telling you part of the truth in order to gain your following. So it's in response to this that Paul effectively says, you think I am a people pleaser? Hear this word. Anyone who disagrees with the message that I brought to you, let him be accursed. And then he repeats it just to make sure the point is clear. Far from being a people pleaser, Paul is about the glory of God. He's about the purity of God's message to sinners like us and how they can be reconciled to him. Paul will certainly suffer for the sake of this message. He had and certainly would more, but he, and he would often deny his rights in order to be all things to all people, but never at the cost or compromise of the gospel. His aim was always and exclusively the glory of God by being a true servant of Christ. Friends, you cannot be a servant of Christ and put pleasing people over serving him. You know, I was confronted with this very situation while I was in Illinois this past week. Many of you know that I went home for a, a funeral for my great-grandmother, um, and I was asked the day before I left if I would present a eulogy and close in prayer. It was a Catholic wet, or funeral, and there were many who do not know the Lord, and some who were, frankly, offended by the gospel. Nobody else would speak except the Catholic priest, and then I was asked if I would get up and share. So I was, I was confronted with the question, would I use this, to take advantage of sharing the gospel with all of my family, whom I would probably never have in the same room again, offer to them the way of salvation? Or would I kind of step aside and say things that are only pleasant and pleasing to the ears at risk of not offending anybody? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, there are circumstances that may cause you to do different than I did. But I praise God that those words would not leave my mind and the gospel was heard by every member in my family. And I pray, pray, pray with me that some of them would be converted, even from this last week. I wonder what the challenges are and the circumstances that you face today. Is it knowing that the gospel and faithfulness to it might make you an offense to the culture around you? Is it being called a name, thought of as a bigot, or as somebody who, who doesn't love others? Friend, you must realize that you cannot serve two masters. In this spiritual war, you cannot serve both sides. What is, what is it that Jesus says? Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will love the one and hate the other. I wonder whose approval then you most crave. If you know this bondage of being controlled by man's opinion of you, let me commend to you Ed Welch's book that I recently read, When People Are Big and God Is Small. And I hold it up because I want to offer to the first person who asks me at the door that guarantees me they will both read it and meet with me to talk about it. Before I leave in September, I will give you a free copy at that door on the way out. But it, he does an incredible job treating this very issue of the fear of man, what he calls the fear of man. And he says the greatest antidote to it is actually a fear of God. It's just a misplaced fear. 
Don't fear man, fear God. And when you fear God, an overflow of that will be you start to love man rather than need them and their approval. Now, a word of caution. You must know that simply because you are good at displeasing men does not necessarily mean you are being more faithful. There could be ample reasons that you displease men. You could be rude or impatient or maybe your zeal actually causes people to think you don't really care about them. There are ample reasons, infinite number of ways we can offend and bring disrepute on the gospel of Jesus Christ and so prove to not be true servants. Paul is experiencing this as a result of lovingly and firmly, unabashedly, but lovingly, exhorting them to the truth. And it does mean that unless you are willing to offend, are willing to displease, you cannot be a servant of Christ. How else are you to protect the gospel and identify who is a true teacher? And was it not Jesus himself, our greatest example, delighting in his Father's will, desiring his glory such that he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross? And he warned us in John 15 that if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. What would it look like for you to live in the fear of the Lord as a true servant of Christ even this week? What would it look like for this church to do that? Those would be a great question to consider over lunch this afternoon. Friends, the true gospel the truth that we hold fast to is the fundamental answer to that first question we ask, what do Christians really believe? And if we are to hold fast to this truth as a church, we must trust true teachers, protect the true gospel, and live as true servants. And I pray that such zeal would mark this church now and for years to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you as, as servants. Anything we do, it's, it's merely doing what we've been called to as your servants. Help us, we pray. Teach us what it is to, to know and protect this glorious news and to do so in a manner that demonstrates our servitude of Christ. For his glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.